We're going to talk more about unity today, and in order to get us started, I want to ask you if you know a short story called The Emperor's New Clothes. The Emperor's New Clothes is about an arrogant emperor who always wants new clothes. And so in his arrogance, somebody finally comes to him and tells him that they have made him the finest clothes in all of the kingdom. What the emperor sees is nothing. And in his arrogance, he believes he genuinely is wearing the finest clothes in all of the kingdom as he walks around with no clothes on. Arrogance gets us in trouble. It gets us in trouble a lot. Uh, I was thinking about this even in my own life. I'll, I'll get to myself where I'm thinking, man, I've, I've been doing pretty good on my, my sins and my spiritual struggles, and I've been really, really doing well. And what happens? I stumble. I fall. When we're arrogant, we are bound to fall. And that's going to come out in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 21, is we look for unity. The key step to unity is humbly denying arrogance and admitting to God that we need him and his way of handling our sin problem. So read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 21. The Apostle Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already, you have all you want. Already, you've become rich. You've begun to reign. And that, without us, how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. For we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if I had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love who is faithful in the Lord, he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon. If the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how those arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, 
but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Remember the situation that Paul is dealing with in Corinth. He's dealing with a church that has divided itself into tribes or factions, where they've elevated certain leaders over other leaders. You've got some people saying, I follow Paul. Other people are saying, well, I follow Apollos. And some people are saying, I follow Cephas. And others are saying, you all, I follow Christ. And Paul's saying, knock it off. The church is to be a united people. And arrogance has no place. What Paul says in verses 6 through 8 is arrogance has no place in the Christian walk. Arrogance has no place in the Christian walk. The Christian walk is a walk of humility, a walk of humble unity. You see, in verses 6 and 7, Paul emphasizes that we have a tendency to have too high of a view of ourselves and our people. That's our tendency. It's natural to us. In our fallen, sinful nature, it is natural for us to put too high of a view on ourselves and on our people. And you all know who our people are, right? You have your people, the people that you get along with as opposed to those other people. We tend to view ourselves and our people too highly. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, which we covered last week, the Apostle Paul had suggested, really he had actually come out and said, that he was not even qualified to judge himself. His conscience was clear, but that did not mean that he was above because God was the only one qualified. If God's the only one qualified and Paul's not even qualified to judge himself, then guess what? We also aren't qualified to hold ourselves above somebody else. Only God is the one who knows the heart. And so Paul says in verse 6, look at each other, look at yourself through the lens of Scripture. Look at yourself not through the lens of the world, which says money, power, influence matter. Look at yourselves through the word of Scripture, which says what is it that matters most? Faithfulness. Faithfulness to God. That's what scripture says matters. And Paul goes on in verse 7, and he says, who, what, and why? Who is the one? Who's the one that really can judge one person is better than another? It's none of us. Paul says, what do you think you've done yourself that's so good? What do you think that you have done that's so good? And the answer is, oh, of myself, I've done nothing. And so Paul ends with, then why are you boasting? If it's all God, why are you boasting in yourself? You have a good job, that's great. Who gave it to you? God. You have a good house, wonderful. Who gave it to you? God. Good friends, thank God for that. Good parents that raised you, great. Who gave those to you? It absolutely wasn't yourself, right? It was God. Paul says, why boast when we know that it's not ourselves? Don't hold ourselves in a high view. Don't hold our people in a high view because it is God. In verse 8, Paul continues, and what he says is don't value the already while underestimating the not yet. 
Don't value the already while underestimating the not yet. And so I need to explain this a little bit to you. Theologians talk about we are living in the already not yet. We today live in the already not yet. Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, defeating death, defeating sin. His resurrection is proof that he has defeated sin. And hence, Jesus is King Jesus. We sang, all hail King Jesus. He is already king, but the full realization of his kingdom is not yet. Sin still has a place on our earth. It's been defeated, but it hasn't been eliminated. We are living in the already, but don't let that underestimate the not yet. Paul says, already, do you have all you want? Have you really experienced everything that there is to experience in terms of righteousness and blessing from God? I hope not because I still sin a lot. I don't know about you. I long for that time when Christ completely removes my sin nature. Paul says, already you've become rich. Do you really believe that the blessings that you have, you may have a beautiful house. You may have lots of money in the bank. You really believe that God has given you everything he's going to ever be able to give you. I serve a bigger God than that. Paul says, have you already begun to reign? Do you really believe that the kingdom is fully realized? No. There's so much more to come. Arrogance leads us to believe that we have arrived. And the answer is no. There is still so much more to come. Our world is far from perfect. God is still working to usher in his full kingdom. We are in the already. But the not yet is still to come. So let me give you an action step. Root out arrogance in your life. That's the action step. Root out arrogance in your life. Look for places where you hold yourself above others, where you say, I have, I've conquered sin. No, only Jesus conquers sin. Root arrogance out of your life. That's the first key step to unity. The second comes in verses 9 through 14. And what we have in verses 9 through 14 is the apostolic model reminds us that we shouldn't boast in the things of the world. The apostles remind us, their life reminds us not to boast in the things of the world. The emphasis here, especially in verse 9, is on contrast. Paul just ended with verse 8, and he said, have you begun to reign? And without us, how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. What Paul is saying is, if this is all there is, it's not. But I wish, I wish that the kingdom was here because then I'd be part of it too. Instead, look at the contrast of the Apostle Paul's life. Paul puts this on display. He paints us a picture. So I want to try to explain the picture in verse 9. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Imagine the Roman army marching 
into an area, conquering that area, capturing the people, the people who have rebelled against the Roman army, and marching back to Rome. And in this picture, what you would have is you would lead with your generals. You know, maybe they're riding horses, but you'd lead with your generals. Following your generals, you'd have your soldiers. Following your soldiers, you'd have your captives. Those who had rebelled against mighty Rome. And you march into the city. This was something that would actually happen in Rome. You march into the city and you march to where? The arena, the stadium. The royalty take their seats. The city takes their seats. And in march the captives at the back of the procession. Not in a position of honor, but rather to fight the wild beasts. The entire arena watches the spectacle to see the cost of defying the Roman Empire. The Apostle Paul takes this picture and he says, in the case of the apostles, it's not the cost of defying the Roman Empire. It's the cost of following Christ. The Apostle Paul shows the model that the things of God stand in sharp contrast to the things of the world. There may be a cost to following Christ. And that cost should root arrogance out of our life as we count what it is that God may ask us to give up. Paul gives three contrasts in verse 10. The first is that truly following Christ will often look foolish to the world. Truly following Christ will look foolish to the world. One of the um, items that I used to enjoy doing when I worked at the university, was looking at the list of donors to the math department that would come out in the newsletter. And here's why I enjoyed looking at it. Because the amount of money donated was way less than a tithe. Because if people, if everybody in this country actually gave 10% of their income, we'd have more money in nonprofits than we would know what to do with. Following God, giving a tithe, looks foolish to the world. The world can't imagine living with 10% less of their income. God asks us to do it. That's just one example. Following Christ looks foolish to the world. The second contrast is that truly following Christ will require that you admit, and not just admit, but embrace weakness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, asking Jesus to remove a thorn, that Jesus responded to him and said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Following Christ requires that we admit our weakness, that we admit our struggles. Finally, in verse 10, the third contrast, Paul says, following Christ, truly following Christ, will require that you sacrifice your very honor as you submit to Christ. 
the things of God stand in sharp contrast to the things of the world. And that is most obvious to most of us in the tyranny of wealth that rules our world. You see in verses 11 through 13, what Paul is saying is that the tyranny of wealth and want need to be replaced with an eschatological perspective. Eschatological means end times, looking towards the end, looking towards eternity. The tyranny of wealth and need need to be replaced with an eschatological perspective. Paul says, look at the suffering that the apostles who are looking to the future, who have seen the risen Christ and recognize eternity, look at what they are able to endure. Hunger and thirst, lack of clothing, brutality, homelessness, Manual labor, gracious gracious responses to cursing, endurance of persecution, gracious responses to slander. Paul takes it so far as to say they become the scum and garbage of the earth. That is what it means to give up arrogance, is to be willing to accept anything that Christ may ask. How are the apostles, how are the apostles able to do this? By looking towards eternity and recognizing that all that we have to endure here is but a flash in the pan. Now, you might look at that list and you might say, well, does it make me a bad Christian because I haven't gone hungry recently? or lived in rags, or been brutally treated. And in verse 14, Paul says, no, no. Don't feel ashamed of your blessing. Don't feel ashamed that you haven't had to experience this. Rather, humbly put your focus on Christ. Paul isn't listing out all these things you may have to endure, that the apostles did have to endure, to make you feel ashamed that you haven't. I have not experienced much of anything on this list. You probably have not experienced much of anything on that list. We had a missionary come and speak to us that lives in a very harsh country a month ago, and even he's only experienced a couple of things on that list. The apostle Paul is not saying, feel ashamed because you haven't experienced what the apostles did. No, he's saying, rather, put your focus on Christ. Instead of feeling shame, we should use this list to make sure that our focus is on eternity. Would I be willing to give up food for Christ? Would I be willing to endure slander for Christ? Would I be willing to go homeless for Christ? So, let me give you an action step. Ask yourself, am I allowing the world to influence my self-perception? as being worthy of not going hungry, of not being homeless, of defending ourselves when we're cursed or slandered? Are you allowing the world to influence your self-perception? Or would you accept anything on that list that Christ might ask you to accept? Now, if you're anything like me, you read that list and you have significant doubts in your mind. You say, I, I honestly, 
would struggle if Christ asked me to give up my home for him. I would struggle. If you're honest with yourself, I suspect you would too. So how do we grow? Because how do we get to that point where we will accept whatever Christ gives us? And the answer is to grow spiritually. And in verses 15 through 21, Paul tells us that the tools for spiritual growth are available and we're expected to use them. There are tools that have been made available to us for spiritual growth. Let's look at these tools. If you look at what Paul has said, his argument is that we need to grow. The Corinthians had not grown. They were arrogant. They were not following the model of the apostles. And so Paul tells us how to grow. In verses 15 and 16, he tells us that imitation of the spiritually mature is a natural way to grow. Imitate the spiritually mature. Paul says, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, the idea of guardian there is pedagogue. That's the, the Greek term for it. That was the home tutor. So if you were a wealthy Greek family, you had a slave, a tutor, a pedagogue, who was responsible for taking care of the young children. Think of it as almost a nanny with a little bit of a, a job of actually teaching them something as they were growing. But you had the pedagogue. But the pedagogue only taught sort of the basics. You looked to dad because dad was the one who had the business. Dad was the one who went to work and had a trade. And so you would look to the pedagogue to teach your children, but the children would look to dad, to their father, who would raise them and eventually teach them to function in society. Paul says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. We are called to imitate the apostles, to follow them. Why? Because for the pedagogue, it was their job. They were a slave. For the father, it was a gift to have his children imitate him to grow up, to learn the trade, to be able to be like dad. The command that Paul gives for the Corinthians was to follow his lead. It didn't mean a life of traveling missionary necessarily, but rather to live in a way that's willing to give it all up, to humbly deny arrogance and be willing to give up everything for God. In verse 17... Paul continues by highlighting that instruction from a spiritual leader is another important way to grow. The Apostle Paul could not be there all the time, so he had sent Timothy. Timothy, the Apostle Paul's probably most trusted student. Timothy was the son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father, he came to know Christ at a fairly young age, as we read through uh, the various letters, especially First and Second Timothy. He lived a life where he was willing to give it all up for Christ and studied under Paul. Paul's letters to Timothy reveal a deep fatherly love that Paul had for Timothy. And so Paul tells the church in Corinth, 
I have sent to you, Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful. Remember, what is the one thing that people need to show? What is it that people are judged on? Faithfulness. Who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, look to this spiritual leader. Because looking to a spiritual leader is an important way to grow. We need spiritual leaders. In verses 18 through 21, Paul tells them, it's not just that I'm recommending you grow. No, spiritual growth is a reasonable expectation to which we are held. Spiritual growth is a reasonable expectation to which we are held. We're expected to grow spiritually. We have the apostles to imitate. We have spiritual leaders who are faithful, who can instruct us. And the answer is yes, please do. Teach me. Help me to grow. So let me give you an action step. Find someone to disciple you today. That's the action step. That's the key to unity. Remember, the problem in Corinth was disunity. In chapter 4, Paul is arguing that the cause was arrogance. The solution is to root out arrogance, following the apostles in order that we might grow spiritually. And his concluding step is to listen to the instruction of this more mature believer named Timothy. So how do we take that today and apply it to our lives? We need to find someone to disciple you. This matters. Discipleship matters. Whether that is one-on-one -on -one discipleship, discipleship in a home group or Bible study or a Sunday school class, we need people to disciple us. And it matters so much that my application action right now is I want you to turn to someone next to you and ask them if they're in a discipleship relationship with someone. Go for it. Do it. At this point, you now know a new piece of information. You may be able to encourage someone. You may have someone in mind. Oh, this person could disciple this person. Or this person could join this Bible study. Or maybe you have something you can start praying about now. I encourage you, find someone to disciple you. If you just learned that your friend, they might be a family member, but let's call them your friend. If you just learned that your friend doesn't have someone discipling them, you now have something to pray about. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that your model for spiritual growth is learning from others. Learning to trust you, learning to root out arrogance, learning to follow people who have faithfully gone before us, learning to be discipled. And so I pray that as a church, you would turn us into a church where people are in discipleship relationships. Help us to pray for those we are discipling. Help us to pray that you would place somebody in our life to disciple us. And as we pray, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see, that we would see where we need to grow.
that we would see where we need discipleship. <coughs> Father, I thank you for your model built on relationship. Help us to grow as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.